You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today from the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet, and today we're following on the unending discussion about FISA 702 with a little reality check on privacy and data from friend of the cast, Alex Joel. Mr. Joel is a scholar-in-residence and adjunct professor with the Technology, Law, and Security Program at the American University Washington College of Law. He previously served as the first Civil Liberties Protection Officer for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and he held that position for 14 years, during which time he reported directly to five different DNIs, some testimony on his ability to deal with all kinds of people, of course. He is a big thinker on the topic about how data that individuals give up to providers is used across the globe and is thought about in other countries many of which may see our technological expanse as a menace. And in times of hegemonic upheaval, where autocracies seem to be on the rise literally everywhere, how data is collected and accessed, how it can be used to subjugate populations, exert influence, and maintain control of people is something that we're all concerned about, but especially Alex Joel. Alex, always glad when you can join us. This is really dystopic stuff. Yes, it is. And in fact, the DNI has warned about the possibility of what happens if these trends continue. So we can certainly talk about that. We do appear to be in some sort of a populist fervor, literally everywhere across the globe. These are dark times, but let's start with the basics here. The amount of data that we're seeding to providers and aggregators is really not understood well by the average American, or so would Eliza Gointin of the Brennan Center has said. But let's outline the categories of data that we do give up, where that data resides, and the length of time that that data might remain available to brokers or purchasers of that data, not all of whom have the best intentions. I think a lot of people are familiar, of course, with all of the apps we use, our phones, all of the services that are available to individuals online right now. It's really an amazing variety of services that are available to all of us through these different devices and through our work as well. So it's not just our personal data, although that's a big part of it. It's you know the data that we provide to apps for ordering food or for ordering things off the internet. Uh, I just was on Amazon today. Yesterday, I ordered stuff from Grubhub. They have my location. They have my order history, the credit card companies have our financial data, our, the banks have all kinds of information about us. So this is all very well known that we have huge amounts of data that are being collected by companies. And in terms of the data being available to third parties, uh, many companies uh, promise privacy when they collect this data. And a lot of the questions that come up around how that data is actually used and stored and transmitted falls into the category of what are the privacy laws, what are the laws that are in effect in, in different countries that require companies to hold data in particular ways and to safeguard it. And it's not just data that might be available to third parties. The companies themselves, of course, use the data to customize their services. They do provide access to data in different ways to other companies for purposes of ads. And in many ways, ad revenue is responsible for a lot of the free services that we have on the internet today. If we didn't have ad-supported internet services in, in many ways, the variety would have been narrowed significantly over time. Another part of it, when we're thinking about this global ecosystem of data that uh, I don't know that people always think about, is that every company that does business in different countries 
of course, is going to collect data about its own employees, its own services, its own co contractors, its own suppliers. So they have data. They collect it. They're going to process that data. They're, that data needs to be transmitted to other business operations and locations around the world. So there's going to be corporate data that flows across borders. There's going to be individual data that flows across borders through a variety of different companies. And I think a, a lot of our focus tends to be on the big tech companies you know, like Meta and Google and Amazon and Apple. And, and that's all understandable because they are the big players in terms of individual information. But just about every business around the world that does business across borders is going to have data that needs to flow to other countries and needs data from other countries. This is a huge issue that goes well beyond the consumer-facing companies, although our focus really tends to be almost exclusively on those consumer-facing companies when we talk about these issues. Okay, well, you're talking about a lot of even these advertisers, basically these aggregators sell the aggregated data back to advertisers. I don't have it in front of me, but we can certainly hyperlink it for our listeners that there have been claims that recently the Chinese have gotten access to some of that information in Europe and one of the aggregators in Europe. And there were concerns about how that might be used by the Chinese to target supply chain, actually. And that was somewhat concerning. But while everyone is sort of teeth gnashing right now over FISA 702, Providers have created a perfect feedback loop with humans. So you punch the keyboard, you get your Instagram dopamine hit. The aggregators vacuum up our preferences. They sell them off to advertisers. And yet here we sit, uh, Congress has known about this for basically a decade at this point, and they have never legislated any broad privacy legislation regarding that data, or have they? Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's helpful to think about this area as consisting of different spheres. So we have the commercial sphere, which is, I think, what we're mostly talking about here uh, at this point, which is what companies do with data. So when a company collects information, what are the rules that it has to follow? How does it deal with that information? How long should it store that information? Can it transfer that information across borders? Can it sell that information to a company, as you pointed out, that might be associated with China, that might be used by an adversary what are those rules? And in the U.S., the commercial sphere tends to be regulated in vertical silos, vertical sectors. So there's financial privacy legislation. There's healthcare privacy legislation. There's education. You look at these different sectors, and, and the U.S. privacy approach has been called a sectoral approach to privacy for a reason, because we have laws that govern each vertical silo. Cutting across a lot of that tends to be the Federal Trade Commission Act, the FTC Act. So the FTC can basically hold companies to their public promises about privacy. So if a company in their privacy statement says something that they're going to do with the data, they have to actually do that with that data. The FTC will hold them to it. So it's absolutely true that Congress has not yet passed comprehensive privacy legislation that cuts across horizontally across the different sectors and imposes consistent requirements. We're seeing a lot of different things happen at the state level. And of course, some countries overseas have comprehensive privacy legislation, but Congress has not yet got to that point. Now, the other spheres, though, I think is interesting to think about because it is all, they're also relevant here. So what I'll call the regular government sphere, the agencies that are not national security agencies, not the intelligence agencies, not the Defense Department, in the regular government agencies, we do have comprehensive privacy legislation. It's called the Privacy Act of 1974. And it is scrupulously co complied with and implemented, and there's all kinds of documentations and regulations 
implementing the Privacy Act. So we have comprehensive privacy legislation in the quote-unquote regular government. And I would argue we also have it in the national security sphere. We have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We have Executive Order 12333, which has the force of law for intelligence agencies. We have more recently Executive Order 14086, applying to signals intelligence and protecting privacy for people regardless of nationality. So ironically, the area that we tend to be criticized heavily from countries outside of the U.S. in terms of the national security is actually an area that we've regulated and legislated a lot about for decades. Uh, the area where we really need comprehensive privacy legislation is in the commercial sphere, and we don't have that yet. Let's face it, everybody in the world at this point uses Google, Yahoo, Apple, and Amazon, and probably a couple other companies I'm not thinking of. But these are all American companies that are based in the United States. So how have other countries reacted to the notion that these U.S. companies are acquiring these massive data troves? And let me say, because I, I, you know, I did get an email about this from somebody. Other countries haven't come up with the bigs yet. Okay. But nevertheless, how do they see sort of the girth and the might of these companies and their data troves? Yeah, so some countries do have giant tech companies, right? So let's, as you pointed out, like China, for example, has some very large companies. Russia also has companies that do a lot of data processing for, for Russian companies and for Russian individuals. But let's focus on the American companies, because as you point out, they are the big ones that people think about. And if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody living in Europe, let's say, or in any other country outside the United States, and you have this feeling that all the apps you're using are from these big American companies, the data is being processed in the United States. And as we just discussed, the U.S. doesn't have comprehensive privacy legislation. That's going to get you a bit nervous, I think. If we had all of our data being used by European companies, we would be more focused on what, what's going on in those, in those countries. Like, how is that data being protected? Who has access to that data? So I think in many ways, the concern that people have about American companies is reasonable because if those companies have all of this data, then the question comes up, well, what are they doing with it? So the American companies, I think, have been very good at trying to be more transparent in their privacy notices. They're trying very, very hard to comply with the privacy laws of other countries. And in fact, one of their main complaints is that these laws vary so much based on country and how can they possibly figure out how to comply with all of these different rules and deal with all these different enforcement authorities. I do think that the American, the success of these American tech companies, which is great and which is something you know the U.S. is and should be proud of, attracts a lot of attention and generates a lot of heat and a lot of drama. And I'm not saying that's an unreasonable result of their success, but it is a result of their success because they have access to so much data. There's a lot of concern and questions about and focus on what they're doing. And now having you know, focused on this issue a lot and having talked to folks in these companies, I'm convinced that they are in, in good faith, dedicating a lot of time, effort, and resources to complying with the rules and the laws of various uh, jurisdictions around the world. And trying to figure that out in a consistent way is very, is very challenging and very difficult for them. I think the, the biggest example, the one that tends to attract the most attention is this tension between the U.S. and the EU, right? So the U.S. and the European Union. And of course, the European Union has something called the General Data Protection Regulation, which is comprehensive privacy legislation across all of the EU member states. And it imposes fairly strict requirements on what companies must do to ensure that they are providing essentially equivalent protections to those 
that are required in the EU for that data. If you're a corporate attorney, if you're working for one of these companies or any company that's doing business that where data flows in and out of the European Union, if the issues are focused on commercial privacy, remember when I was first trying to divide the world into the privacy world into spheres, if the issue is how does a company protect data that it has control of, well, that's something that companies are used to figuring out what to do about, right? So even though they're, they've got these headaches with all these different rules and requirements from one country to the next, a company has the ability through contracts, through different restructurings, through how they think about and move the data, they can deal with commercial requirements. So if the requirement is that you have to give notice or, or, or you don't give notice or, or the extent of that notice, they can try to structure their operations to meet that requirement. They can make a contractual commitment that is binding in the country that is imposing the regulation so that country can enforce that contractual commitment and go after them if they don't abide by that commitment. So as long as the, it, it's stuff that's within their control, it's doable, even though it could be painful and costly for the company. The problem comes in the national security sphere, where the country to whom the data flows, to which the data flows, and in our example tends to be the US, can have overriding laws. So a company can't contract its way out of FISA. If they receive a FISA court order, they must comply or risk contempt of court and potential criminal sanctions, civil and criminal penalties. So they have to comply with the recipient country's national security and law enforcement access requirements when they're served binding order or directive from that country's government. So it becomes, at that point, what does the company do? They can't, at that point, contract their way around it. It's very difficult to restructure the, the internet to, to change the way data flows because the internet is the internet. It's designed to be open. And the data could become useless if they can't actually bring the data back to uh, other parts of the world where that data is necessary for their business purposes. The governments have to then reach some kind of an understanding about how they expect other countries to access the data for their national security purposes, right? So there has to be trust. And this is gets to the crux of, of one of the issues that, that I was hoping we could talk about today, which is there has to be trust in how data is going to be handled when it flows from one country to another. And I think there are ways to reach that point where there is trust, where you have democracies that are allied with each other, essentially partners in many, many different ways, as the US is with European Union countries. There is a way of establishing that trust among democracies that are governed by the rule of law on the one hand, and then thinking about, well, wait a minute, what about authoritarian regimes? What about governments that aren't governed, the countries that aren't governed by the rule of law in the same way that uh, democracies are? Like, you know, not every democracy is going to be perfect, of course. Just the fact that you have a democracy doesn't mean that there won't be problems with how the government seeks to access and use data. But I do think it's important to establish an understanding, a trusted framework for democracies governed by the rule of law to share data with each other more quickly and not to say, no, you don't get the data because your government could access data for national security purposes in ways that are different from ours, because, you know, we're comfortable with way X, you guys are doing it with way Y, and that's just not, uh, we're not comfortable. You know, if you look at this sentence or this term, it's not in your law, it's in our law. In the meantime, you've got authoritarian regimes who are really seeking to soak up 
this data and control technology uh, for their own purposes, which are adversarial to the interests of democracies. You make a good point on that score. The aggregators, though, they're governed by sanctions law, of course, but they don't always know who they're dealing with, and they can sell data troves to individuals or even foreign intelligence services without necessarily being aware of that. And when I say foreign intelligence services in this scenario, I'm imagining autocracies, places, as you mentioned, without the rule of law. Now, with respect to that, other than sanctions law, has Congress done anything to protect Americans' data from ending up in those hands? It's short of, say, a sanctions regime? Yeah, so let's talk about that problem for a second. So I, I guess the ones that, that get most often discussed are Russia and China. And they have different models for how they're dealing with their tech sectors and how they're dealing with data. China is, of course, much more direct in terms of trying to control their own version of the internet, who can access the internet, what data they have access to, what websites can be used and accessible, what apps are used and accessible within China. Russia is, is a bit of a, in a different situation. They have individuals who have been sanctioned, of course, after the invasion of Ukraine. And, and they've always had a more legalistic approach, as I understand it, from reading the literature to understanding who is using the data, who is saying what about the regime and trying to deal with disinformation and misinformation campaigns and, and focus more on letting the, the company sort of operate, but in ways that are favorable to the Russian regime. Whereas China, as I said, is much more strictly trying to control the means of data flow and production within China. Both countries seek to get access, as I understand it, access to data from other countries around the world, including very much so China seeking data access to data in the U.S. That is very clear in the public discussion. So what has Congress done? It's really interesting because the CFIUS update that recently happened, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, as we all know, CFIUS really focuses on investment by foreign entities in U.S. companies, in U.S. businesses, where traditionally it's been seeking control of the business but now they're also looking at whether or not a foreign investment will give a foreign investor access to data about Americans and, you know, large amounts of data or sensitive data. So there is a focus now in CFIUS on investments that give access to data about Americans. And to me, that's very important. And that's an important consideration. And I understand that investment and ownership can give owners additional controls and additional ways to get at things that may be less transparent and less easy to identify. And so once you once you provide for ownership and allow ownership, it gives the owners more ways to access data. It might also give them legal rights to access the data because they're the owners, right? So they would have more rights as owners. So I understand that ownership can be thought of differently, but it really is, as you're alluding to, only one slice of it. You know, what about entering into a commercial transaction to obtain the data? You know, what about using a front company to obtain the data? Is there anything illegal under U.S. federal law? Because that might well be illegal under some of the state laws. But is it is it anything illegal under federal law? And again, you would have to go through a sector, sector by sector approach. You'd have to see what the privacy statements of those companies say. You would have to look at the FTC enforcement actions. It's possible that those kinds of sales would be problematic, but it's no, there's no comprehensive law 
that establishes a baseline for when a company can sell access to data or provide data to a foreign company or a foreign adversary or, or anybody because there isn't comprehensive privacy legislation in this area. So I've always felt I understand the I understand the focus and concern around commercial data and whether or not the intelligence community has access to it. I get that because the government, if it has access to your data, can do things with that data that impact you directly. And the governments that we should have concern with, of course, are our own governments who could, you know, put us on a watch list or do other things that would affect our livelihood or our ability to exercise First Amendment freedom. So, of course, the focus should not be only on the U.S. government. The focus should be on everybody who might have access to this data, including certainly adversaries. Now, Senator Wyden did introduce a bill last year on protecting American data. And Bill suggested a a way of doing it that would essentially look at high-risk data to adversarial countries as an export control matter. So that's that's a bill that hasn't... um, When he said high-risk data, what what did he mean? Because when you talk about the CFIUS thing, what I'm picturing is a Chinese company wants to buy a company that has life insurance information and a lot of data about Americans, personal data, health things like that. That comes to mind. When would that ever happen? (laughs) Yes, that did happen. Yes. (laughs) You know, those are the things that come to mind or a company that, you know, is buying DMV data, for example, which apparently is often privately held outside of states by individual companies and can be sold to the Russians. So I'm just trying to get an image as you start talking about Wyden's bill in this, what do you call it, sensitive data or I don't have the bill open in front of me, but as I recall, it called on the Department of Commerce to issue regulations, which would then identify high-risk countries and low-risk countries and then establish export controls for them. As I'm looking at the summary, it says identify categories of personal data. So I'm not sure exactly what the bill has in mind. I think it would be something that, that would have to be worked out. But you could think of almost any kind of data that could be problematic. And I think in the CFIUS context, you know, you can look at certain data, like you said, if it's a life insurance company or, or some kind of a professional liability company that's providing liability insurance to cleared employees or processing information about cleared employees, then, of course, you have a concern regarding that specific information about those specific people. But it also casts a broader net and says if you collect information on certain, you know, on a very large volume of Americans, it could also be treated as sensitive because you might gain inferences about Americans that an adversary country could use to target people for recruitment, to target them for collection or anything like that. So, Or even predatory investment if the area is particularly depressed for one reason or another, if it was financial data. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could be problematic with data. With what, do you, what do you think? High risk countries, low risk country? I think I'm thinking like Liechtenstein, low risk country. Wait a minute. <laughs> right. Don't the right. oligarchs all keep their money in places like Liechtenstein's? Is it really low risk or is it really kind of Russia? Yeah, I don't know. That would have to be something that gets worked out. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> they're, they're not really great at working things out right now. <laughs> Let's move on for just a second, because we're talking about the topic of government access to personal data held in the private sector. Now, there's something I'm going to use the it's not an acronym because it's not a word. So it's an abbreviation, the OECD. Now, you've worked with the OECD. First of all, tell the people who don't know what it is, what it is and what your work has involved and what their remit is vis-a-vis private sector data. Yeah, it's super interesting. So the OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's been around for decades. 
obviously based on the name, it focuses on economic issues and they've recently been doing a lot of work in the digital space. They've done guidance on uh, artificial intelligence, on blockchain, on information security, but they do work across a huge number of topic areas. They're actually headquartered in Paris. It's a large organization. It's an international organization composed of member countries. And there are how many member countries? I keep forgetting. I believe there are 38 member countries, not including Russia or China, right? And they have members from Asia and Europe and Latin America from around the world. It's not the whole world. It's just 38 of these countries. And they have their own structure. I mean, it's a very structured organization. One of the things that they did was back in 1980, they issued privacy guidelines. These were very important guidelines, a high level in terms of how companies and governments ought to be protecting privacy. And those evolved from the fair information practice principles, which is the core of how the U.S. thinks of privacy. And they famously came out of a 1973 health and education, health back then it was the Department of Health, Education and Welfare report. Basically, back in the 70s, looking at how computer technology was going in those huge IBM mainframes, warned about the privacy issues that might arise with government access to this data and came up with these fair information practice principles. And those sort of informed what became the Privacy Act in 1974 for the U.S. government. Well, the OECD took those on and issued in 1980 what they called privacy guidelines, incorporating the fair information practice principles, which later the OECD privacy guidelines from 1980 inspired the EU Data Protection Directive, which was the precursor to GDPR. So in the, in the, in the mid-90s, you have this Data Protection Directive coming out of the EU. And then in 2018, you have General Data Protection Regulation, which supersedes the Data Protection Directive. All of that is to say that it goes back to the OECD. Now, the reason this is very relevant is that in the 1980 privacy guidelines, there is an exception for national security and law enforcement, that these privacy guidelines that got developed aren't exactly worded, aren't the same. They can't be applied verbatim to the national security and law enforcement space. And many of our national security listeners would strongly agree with that statement, right? Because some of those principles really are based on individual choice, like the individual about whom the data is concerns has to be told what the data is that they're being that's being collected about them, might have the opportunity to consent or not consent. All this stuff has the ability to access the information and correct the information and ask the information to be deleted. All things that simply cannot be done in a law enforcement investigation, uh, and much less in a national security activity. You know, when we're surveilling people, we're not going to tell them that we're surveilling them and ask for their permission, give them a, a chance to come in and correct the is this what you said on this date? I'm not exactly sure. We, we didn't quite catch and understand this word that you use. Feel free to correct it. Like, we're not doing that. So these principles didn't apply as worded. I mean, some of the concepts apply, but the, 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 the wording of them didn't work for the national security space. So that got excluded in 1980 from the OECD. And if you look at the EU Data Protection Directive, the General Data Protection Regulation, there's also an exception for national security, although it has some additional language around the exception, there's also an exception. So the question then comes up, what happens in that exception? Like, okay, we have these general ideas between countries around the world. You know, there is some obvious disagreement between the U.S. and the EU on some of these issues, but they're, they're not huge disagreements. We have this general understanding of how we want companies and what I called, you know, the regular government to handle data that they collect. 
But what about the national security space? What about the law enforcement space? Where, where is the international consensus on that? What is the discussion on that? And the reason that's important is, of course, because that has been the, the big driver of distrust in recent years among democracies, right? Among allies, there's been a lot of debate and discussion and angst around how does especially the U.S. intelligence community access commercial data held by these big companies, as you pointed out, that have troves of data from around the world because they're so successful and they're so ubiquitous. How is the government regulated in terms of its ability to access this data for national security purposes? Well, if you look in the OECD 1980 guidelines, you're not going to find the answer to that. And so coming out of this concern about how governments access data and then pointing out not only among, with the disagreement between democracies, the, the apparent disagreement, I think there, there isn't real disagreement at a high level. You compare that with Russia and China and what they're doing with data. Coming out of all of that was an initiative initiated by the Japanese, and they're still leading it, called Data Free Flow with Trust. This is the idea that, again, among democracies governed by the rule of law, there ought to be a way to establish trust in a manner that would allow data to flow across borders relatively freely, data free flow with trust. And so this is a, an important initiative from the Japanese government. They're continuing to lead on this. The OECD member countries asked the OECD to start a process to identify principles held in common by OECD member countries on how governments access data, personal data, held by the private sector for law enforcement in national security purposes. So this is the effort that I was engaged in as a consultant along with two others. We were consultants to the OECD secretariat, to the staff, trying to bring together a working group of representatives from the member countries. And these were national security and law enforcement representatives, as well as data protection and privacy officials from those member countries, bring them together over a course of, I think it was around two years, to identify principles that are within their legal frameworks that govern how their agencies access data, what is the legal procedure, what are the legal rights, what are the legal safeguards in their countries when their government agencies go to a company and say, can you give me access to this data? I see, we use the term access in terms of like, can you give me, can you provide the data for this particular reason and for this particular purpose? That was the effort. It was ultimately successful. The working group came up with a declaration in December of last year that the OECD adopted. And so tell me what the declaration said in substance and sort of where they concluded would be sort of indices of trust. It's a little bit tricky when you're looking across 38 different countries and trying to find common principles in their legal framework. There's a huge amount of work just in understanding each other, right? It wasn't just that. The reason I'm giving you all this as background is because some of these terms aren't necessarily ones that are immediately familiar to U.S. national security lawyers. It's not only the importance of understanding each other across borders, it's also within each country making sure that the various experts in different aspects of their privacy practice and government accesses practices understand each other. Given crises we've experienced in our democracy since the Church Committee on Forward, we have been really pushed to get one conversation going in this country. And I know that people can be very dissatisfied with the state of that conversation. And certainly we have a very vibrant and important advocacy community that feels like there are, are still lots of problems and making sure there's good transparency in this conversation. 
But nonetheless, we have different sectors of government talking to each other. We have the intelligence agencies talking to each other. We have Department of Justice dealing with both law enforcement and national security. So we have a lot of mechanisms that have been built up over time where we have a better ability to pull together the right people into the right room that understand each other within the country in terms of what the rules are and what they should be. And then you go into an international venue and you have a team that can bring forward that understanding and explain this is how the government does it in the United States. That conversation, that process is still sort of being developed in different countries and it's at different stages of development. You can imagine that, it, that if you're a national security official in a certain country, you may have been very comfortable talking to other national security officials in that country. You may not have been very publicly transparent because you, you weren't forced to by something like we were forced to with the Snowden disclosures. So you may have developed the comfort level of just talking to other national security officials and your oversight bodies, of course, your nationally specialized national security oversight bodies. And now you, we're asking you to be in the same room with not only law enforcement in your own country, but maybe the people involved with more of the commercial data protection side of things, which you previously haven't had the need to talk to before. So it was, it was that whole process as well. Okay, that's all background. So the basic titles for the principles, one is legal basis. <laughs> So you have to have a legal basis for what you're doing. That's very familiar to the U.S. Part of that is also understanding that the legal basis can vary depending on your legal system. So in the U.S., we have this thing called executive orders. So part of it is making sure people understand that when we think of a legal mm -hmm. basis and when you also think of a our legal framework, our legal framework, that's why we also use the term legal framework in this document, because legal framework we defined as including directives, regulations, laws, case mm -hmm. law, the constitution, you know, everything that imposes a binding legal obligation on the agencies involved. And certainly right. and we, we have that. article two that that with respect to national security puts a lot of authority in the president, which exactly. may not be the case elsewhere. And hence exactly. we have executive orders that deal with things like collection of national security information and intelligence. Yes. Exactly. And it goes exactly as you said, it goes back to our constitution and the president's legal authority to do this. And in fact, if Congress tried to get too much into the weeds in terms of how national security is done, there could be a separation of powers issues sure. under our constitution. So we, of course, you know, needed to explain that. And every country has different issues in that regard. Then in terms of legitimate aims, this is where we got into a tricky conversation with our European Union friends, and it worked it out in the language. You have to pursue legitimate aims. Like, obviously, you have to pursue the defense of your country, the national security mm. interests of your country. Uh, but it has, it's a little more specific than that. It's it's not only the aim has to be legitimate. In other words, you can't do it to quash political dissent, right? So there are there are right, right. things you're supposed to do it for, and there are things you can't do it for. And so those are both very, very broadly stated in this principle. But also how you go about doing it. In the U.S. legal system, we use the word reasonable a lot. So the word reasonable is in there. It has to be reasonable. But in the EU system, they use the words necessary and proportionate a lot. So it sounds like law, law of war type of terms, really. It is. Law. Yes. Your military listeners will definitely go exactly where you went, right? Necessity and proportionality is clearly a principle in the laws of war. I did look at that. I think they're quite comparable mm -hmm. because those words are sort of plain English. You know, they have they have the meaning that you think they have, at least in the way the U.S. thinks of it. The, the, the challenge has been that in the European Union, it's been part of their legal framework for decades under the European Convention of Human Rights. And it's also more recently in their European Union legal framework, which is a separate one, but they're both closely related. And so they have a lot of case law 
defining what they mean by necessary and by proportionate. And so the U.S. has always been concerned. Well, if I use those terms, am I, am I accepting the decades of case law that we had nothing to do with? And, you know, right. like, like if we said, oh, it has to be reasonable under the Fourth Amendment and then ask a European country to accept our reasonableness as defined by the Supreme Court and the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, they mm -hmm. would say, what are you talking about? We're not going to do that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So there's language that tries to bridge that. And then there, I'll go through the others real quick. Approvals, you know, things have to be appropriately approved by appropriate authorities. It has mm -hmm. to, you have to handle the data in, in particular ways, control access and security. You have to be transparent to, you know, to the extent you can. There have to be, you know, oversight, effective oversight measures and also mm -hmm. redress. So oversight is fairly, you know, straightforward to understand. You have to have some ability to do oversight so that your agencies, because they're doing some stuff in secret or a lot of stuff in secret, they have to still be overseen by entities that will, they can take a pulled into account. Redresses is limited by definition because mm -hmm. an individual cannot, won't necessarily be able to get access to information about them that is being held by the intelligence agencies, but mm -hmm. they should be able to rest assured that if they submit a complaint, there is a process that's going to kick into place that will make sure that what they complained about is being handled properly. And so that's sort of what the redress principle talks about. So there was a lot of commonality at that level of generality. And then getting there was painful. And I think it's a groundbreaking that finally we have democracies from around the world that came up with this declaration and said, yes, this is how our legal frameworks handle these issues. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association. And this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.